Hi guys! Before we get started, I have an exciting announcement to share. I want to introduce you to Alistair. He'll be taking over for Howell as my co-host. Hi listeners, I host a few other shows for podcasts like Con Artists, Villains and Dog Tales. Howell will be missed, but I'm excited to get started here. Let's get into this week's episode. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, sexual assault, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a typical weekend night in Oakland, 1965, Sonny Barger had just received a call. One of his fellow Hell's Angels was in trouble at a local bar. Sonny arrived to survey the scene at the 400 Club. He soon spotted the angel and his girlfriend being hassled by half a dozen guys from the local chrome shop. Their ringleader had had just enough beers to be brave enough to trash talk the toughest guys in Oakland. Sonny stalked over, cool and collected, to tell his brother that it was time to go. And for good measure, he stuck a 25 automatic in the mouth of the ringleader, just to let him know what would happen if he didn't stop running his mouth. That shut him up. Sonny and the angel left. But the girlfriend doubled back inside to retrieve her purse. Through the window, Sonny spotted the ringleader giving her trouble. He shook his head. Big mistake. He'd already been warned once. Sonny stormed back in, walked up to the guy, and hit him on the side of the head with his 25. But the gun accidentally went off, grazing the man's skull. Sonny chuckled to himself. He'd been trying not to hurt the poor idiot, but fate had clearly intervened. So Sonny grabbed this poor, bleeding, drunken mess, bent him over the pool table, and shot him again. The lesson? Don't mess with a hell's angel. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week... We're telling the story of Sonny Barger, legendary president of the Oakland biker gang, the Hells Angels. This week, we'll be exploring his club's rise to national infamy alongside the counterculture movements of the 1960s. Next week, we'll see how drugs and crime change the face of the club forever.
1963, 25-year-old Sonny Barger was president of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels. This meant he sat at the top of the burgeoning empire of outlaw motorcycle clubs known for drinking, fighting, and dealing drugs. Many anti-establishment organizations like these actually rose to prominence after World War II. Military veterans who had trouble fitting back into the square world of the 1950s needed somewhere to go and shoot the breeze. Hollywood saw the appeal too. The Marlon Brando movie, The Wild One, introduced audiences across America to the world of leather jacket-wearing motorcycle gangs, causing mayhem wherever they went. But in the summer of 1963, Sonny Barger had a bigger concern. Establishing his Oakland charter as the dominant Hells Angel Club, even more powerful than the founding San Bernardino chapter. He also wanted to unite with other outlaw motorcycle clubs around the state. Sure, they spent a fair amount of time beating each other up and jockeying for territory, but they could put their beef aside to unite against a common foe, the cops. So Sonny Barger had an idea that would eventually become a Hells Angels tradition, the Labor Day weekend run. Outlaw motorcycle clubs from all over the state would unite in Porterville, California, a medium-sized town halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield. There was no set itinerary, just a plan to drink, smoke weed, and get up to whatever mischief found them. Sonny Barger led his Oakland Hells Angels into Porterville to rendezvous with four other leading clubs, the Stray Satans, the Galloping Gooses, the Comancheros, and the Cavaliers. In all, there were about 200 bikers invading a town of about 9,000 people. At first, everything went according to plan, with bikers from different clubs bonding over drugs and women. Then, an Oakland angel named Charlie Magoo was having a drink in a bar, minding his own business, when an old townie threw a beer in his face. As soon as Magoo leapt to his feet, the old townie realized he'd made a grave error. There was no way he could take this guy in a fight. The townie bumbled an apology, but it was too little too late. Magoo punched him in the face. The old man stumbled, so Magoo punched him a second time, then a third. The old man collapsed on the floor, knockout. But instead of settling things, the townie went home, grabbed a gun, came back and pointed it at Magoo. This was his town. These angels needed to go. This time, Magoo had backup. A group of fellow angels grabbed the townie's gun and turned it back around on him. They all took turns beating him until he had to be sent to the hospital. Meanwhile, Sonny was presiding over a bacchanal that had taken over the Porterville main drag. Motorcycles were racing each other down the street. The bikers' girlfriends and female hangers-on were having wet t-shirt contests. Everyone was drunk, high, or both. The angels stopped any vehicles passing through town and forced open their car doors. If there were young women in the car, they attempted to pull them out so they could join the party, whether they wanted to or not. Not everyone was thrilled, namely the Porterville chief of police. 
He worried he was losing control of the situation, so he called out to other counties for backup. By 9.30 p.m., over 250 cops rolled into downtown to stop the madness. Their first move was to set up a blockade, hoping to direct the bikers down one road out of town. Once it was set, the chief got on the bullhorn and announced the bikers had five minutes to clear out. Meanwhile, fire trucks spread soapy water down the main streets, making it impossible to race. They turned their hoses on bikers, knocking them off their Harleys. Local teens even got into the action, climbing to the tops of buildings and throwing bricks down onto the street. Faced with an army of guns, hoses and bricks, the bikers had no choice but to leave town. Sonny led his bikers to the parking lot of a sports center a few miles outside of town to assess the situation. As they counted their ranks, they realized they were missing four members who had been knocked off their bikes and arrested. Some of the other clubs wanted to give up and peel out. They trusted their lost members to bail themselves out of jail and find their way home. But Sonny refused to leave without all of his Oakland Hells Angels brothers. So at 2.30 a.m., they turned their bikes around and headed back to Porterville. But the Porterville cops had lined up their squad cars to block the bridge leading into town. And they were prepared to wait as long as it took for the Hells Angels to leave their town for good. Sonny wasn't intimidated by the show of force. He ordered his bikers to line up in a counter blockade across the other half of the bridge. If the cops wouldn't let people into town, then the Hells Angels wouldn't let anyone leave either. It was a standoff. Eventually, a highway patrol officer approached Sonny to try and broker peace. Sonny told the officer he just wanted his men back and would gladly pay the $25 for their bail. The officer took them to the Porterville chief of police, but the chief didn't think $25 was enough. His counteroffer? $50,000. Sonny exploded in anger. He was trying to play by the rules, and these cops were trying to take advantage of him. Sensing a confrontation, the highway patrol officer scrambled to get the chief to agree to a lower bail. Sonny and the chief agreed to $50, and the Hells Angels passed the hat to raise the money. It seemed like a fair resolution. Yet by the time Sonny and the bikers finally left town, they found another row of cops waiting for them, ready to pull over any angel whose bike wasn't up to code. And as a group devoted to customizing their rides, this was damn near all of them. This was the last straw for Sonny. They were done being stopped by the cops. He ordered his men to outrun the police. And they did. In just one night, Sonny Barger proved himself the undisputed leader of the Hells Angels and the baddest of all the outlaw bikers in California. Not bad for a poor kid from Oakland. Sonny Barger was born Ralph Barger Jr. on October 8, 1938. 
He was named after his father, Ralph Barger Sr., who worked laying down pavement for Highway 99 in California's Central Valley. Sonny would later rule that very road as a hell's angel. Sonny's mother, Catherine Carmela Barger, would take Sonny and her daughter Shirley on the Trailways bus to visit their dad at his different job sites. Until she fell in love with the open road too, just in the wrong way. When Sonny was only four months old, she ran off with the Trailways bus driver, leaving her kids with a babysitter in Modesto. The babysitter eventually called the cops in what would be the first of many encounters with the police for baby Sonny. The police alerted his father, who picked up his kids and headed to his mother's house in Oakland. Now a single dad, Ralph Sr. worked hard and drank hard. Sonny was mostly left to fend for himself. When they did spend time together, it was mostly in Oakland bars, with Sonny stealing pretzels and hard-boiled eggs for snacks. School was no safe haven either. He was kicked out of fifth grade for attacking his teacher and later suspended for smashing another student's leg with a baseball bat. Sonny's first taste of freedom was when he was 13 and scraped together $20 to buy a little motorized scooter. It had tiny wheels and a tin frame. That didn't matter. The bike could get all the way up to 40 miles per hour. That freedom meant the streets of Oakland were his. But when Sonny was 16, his dad decided to move into a hotel rather than keep up a house. Left with no place to live, Sonny decided to forge a birth certificate and join the army. Even though Sonny rebelled against authority in school, he loved it in the army. There, the rules made sense. They taught him how to fight and survive. Plus, it was a built-in family. He was sent to Honolulu to train as a machine gunner. But after 14 months, the army discovered he was underage and kicked him out. Luckily, he was honorably discharged, which meant he was undraftable by the time the Vietnam War came around. Back in Oakland, he moved in with his sister Shirley and worked a series of odd jobs. But they all lacked purpose. Nothing held his interest until 1956, when he bought his first used Harley for $125. Sonny could have spent every day riding his bike around Oakland with his friends. One of them, nicknamed Boots, wore a military-style patch with a skull wearing an aviator helmet and wings. Embroidered under the image were the words, Hell's Angels. It looked cool, all right, but neither he nor Sonny had any idea what it meant. They'd find out soon. On one fateful ride through Southern California, their bikes broke down. A biker named Vic Betancourt came to their aid on the side of the road, and he just so happened to be wearing the same patch as Boots. It turned out that Boots's patch wasn't just old military garb, it was an official motorcycle club with branches in Fresno, San Bernardino, and San Francisco. Vic had every right to beat up Boots and Sonny on the spot for wearing that patch. They hadn't earned its merits. But he took pity on the kids and instead asked them if they wanted to form a real club. 
This was the kind of family and purpose Sonny had been craving since he was kicked out of the army. And on the side of that highway in 1957, the Oakland Hells Angels were born. He may have accidentally stumbled into it, but Sonny Barger had finally found a family, one that would be with him, for better or worse, for the rest of his life. Up next, we'll take a look at the Hells Angels' turbulent rise to infamy, including the club's early forays into drugs. Now, back to the story. Sonny Barger was just a run-of-the-mill delinquent until 1957, when he became a founding member of the Oakland Charter of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. The Hells Angels might have been a bunch of outlaws and rebels, but most of them were former military, and the 18-year-old Sonny made sure they ran their club with strict rules and expectations. Meetings had parliamentary structure. The minutes of the previous meeting were read first, then 25-cent weekly dues were collected. In the early years, the Oakland Hells Angels had their meetings in the basement of the house of a member named Junior, or rather, his parents' house. Junior's parents would sometimes come downstairs to say hello to the boys. After about a year, they rented a clubhouse nicknamed the Snake Pit. It was a big Victorian house around the corner from their favorite bar. Anyone was welcome to crash there. After a childhood of instability, that clubhouse meant that Sonny Barger would never be homeless again. The Hells Angels might have had a reputation for lawlessness, but as club president, Sonny had to follow a long list of rules set by the San Bernardino Charter, as well as make some of his own. There were a lot of regulations. The club members rode in strict formation, with Sonny, the president, leading the front of the pack. The vice president rode front right and was in charge of carrying bail money for when they were inevitably pulled over. At the height of their power, the Oakland pack could span half a mile long. They also had rules governing behavior. There was a $5 fine for fighting with another member, a $2 fine for missing a meeting, and a smaller charge for swearing. Weapons could only be shot between 0600 and 1600 hours, and members were prohibited from messing around with another member's wife or girlfriend. Drugs were also a prevalent part of the Angels' lifestyle, and many of them were part-time dealers. One of their most important rules was no drug burns, meaning if you promised to make a drug deal, you had to go through with it. They may have been criminals, but at least they were honest ones. Joining the Angel seemed to be a sacred process, shrouded in rumor and mystery. Recruits were mostly friends or friends of friends. They didn't trust outsiders. By some accounts, new members had to bring a woman or girl, known as a sheep, who was willing to have sex with every member of the club. By other accounts, membership allegedly required killing someone on behalf of the club. Rumors aside, joining the Hells Angels was quite a saga. In the first stage, interested new members, who were known as hangarounds, would spend time in the clubhouse, volunteering for miscellaneous grunt work. If they were game, they moved to the second stage of recruitment, now known as a prospect. 
They spent a year setting up for meetings and cleaning up after. Plus, they had to be available 24-7 for whatever tasks a member needed doing. After serving their year, prospects were put up for a vote by the full membership. But it had to be unanimous. One no vote, and the prospect was out. Once they passed that vote, a new member would get their full Hell's Angel regalia, including the patch with the winged skull of death. Some Hells Angels wore a 1% patch, symbolizing that they were in the 1% of motorcycle riders who were part of outlaw motorcycle gangs. This was a statistic from the American Motorcycle Association, who wanted to differentiate between responsible motorcycle riders and organized criminals like the Angels. Still, others chose to accessorize with swastikas and Nazi regalia to show how little they cared for social norms. After Sonny Barger's leadership in the 1963 Labor Day rally in Porterville, Hell's Angels across the state started looking to his Oakland charter for leadership. He appeared to hold a lot of power, Though at that time, Sonny's angels were little more than low-rent thugs. They were interested in partying, women, drinking beer, and smoking weed. They made some money by stealing motorcycles and parts, or by dealing pot. But in these early days, Hell's angels were as much drug users as drug dealers. Most of the members had other legal jobs in order to get by. Sonny himself had day jobs. Other angels were truck drivers and laborers, just like Sonny's father had been. But while they may not have been criminal masterminds, they were quickly gaining a reputation as quick-tempered and dangerous. On April 2, 1964, eight angels broke into a home in Oakland. A man and woman were inside, along with three children. They forced the man outside and then raped the woman at gunpoint while her children watched. Hours later, she was paid a visit by female friends of the angels who told her that if she talked to the police, they'd cut her in the face. The woman refused to testify and the charges were dropped. This was just one of the many instances of violence that the angels were caught up in during the early 1960s. The Oakland police grew frustrated that they couldn't make any serious charges stick so they doubled down on arresting Hell's Angels for possession of marijuana and other drugs. That's exactly how Sonny Barger spent the summer of 1964, behind bars in the Santa Rita County Jail. But what happened while he was away would mark the Hell's Angels and the Oakland Charter forever. Labor Day weekend, 1964. Just one year after the eventful Porterville rally, the Oakland Hells Angels were ramping up for the second installment of this now annual tradition. This year's destination was the small town of Seaside on California's Monterey Peninsula. And in addition to the usual dancing and debauchery, the Angels had a mission. They needed to raise some money to ship the body of one of their fallen brothers back east for a proper funeral. If everyone in attendance chipped in a buck or two, they should be able to cover it. So the call went out to all the outlaw motorcycle gangs in California, bring your money and come ready to party. The angels had learned their lesson from Porterville though. 
Through friendly connections in Monterey, they reached a truce with the local police ahead of time. If the angels promised not to cause too much trouble, the cops would leave them alone. The bikers' first stop was a local bar called Nick's in downtown Monterey. Cops were stationed outside, trying to keep the locals out and avoid trouble. But plenty of townspeople found their way inside, wanting to catch a glimpse of the angels in person. That evening, the party moved to the beach, an empty stretch of sand between Monterey Bay and an old army training center called Ford Ord. The police agreed to let them do as they please on this remote strip, but still posted guards to keep lookout. For a few hours, everything seemed fine. Then, as evening hit, a few teenage boys came into the police station with worried looks on their faces. They said the angels had run off with their girlfriends. Some deputies were dispatched to the beach and found two young girls, 14 and 15 years old, sobbing and terrified. One was wearing just a shirt. The other was completely naked. The deputy took the girls away to safety, leaving the angels to wonder what lay in store for them. The next morning, the beach was swarmed with squad cars and local and national news media. The police officers separated the Hells Angels from their friends, girlfriends, and locals who had willingly joined in the all-night rage. Then, the teenage girls were brought back out and asked to identify the men who had assaulted them. Four Hells Angels were arrested and charged with gang rape. The arrests made national news. And from behind his cell in county lockup, Sonny Barger knew that he'd have a lot to deal with when he got out. But just a few weeks later, the charges against all four Hells Angels members were dropped for lack of evidence. While the Angels celebrated their good fortune, lawmakers in California decided they'd had enough of the menace of outlaw biker gangs. Attorney General Thomas Lynch was commissioned to write a report cataloging the Hells Angels as a public threat. By the time the report was made public in March 1965, Sonny Barger was already back out of prison, leading the charge to clean up the Oakland chapter. The report was devastating. Lynch claimed the club had 450 members in the state, though the real number was probably closer to 100. The report also attributed 874 felony arrests, 300 convictions, and over 1,000 misdemeanors to the group. Finally, it jabbed that, quote, both club members and female associates seem badly in need of a bath. The government's numbers were overblown. There were barely 200 Hells Angels in California total. Plus, the Hells Angels were the first to be blamed for all crimes, whether they were responsible or not. They just had a bad reputation. But the public had had enough of the biker menace, and police departments around the state got the green light to stop, hassle, and arrest any biker they saw, no matter the circumstances. For a few months, the government strategies worked. Members quit or resigned rather than deal with perpetual harassment by law enforcement. The Sacramento chapter was forced to dissolve altogether due to low membership. Just a few months after the report became public, 
there were only about 85 Hells Angels in the entire state. Then, just when things were at their bleakest, the angels found their unlikely saviors. Up next, Sonny Barger brings his angels to meet Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters. Now, back to the story. During the spring of 1965, the Hells Angels were at their most famous, albeit least powerful. Their ringmaster, Sonny Barger, could barely keep the clubs together amidst rising police pressure and public animosity. But the outlaw motorcycle clubs weren't the only rebels and rabble-rousers who were making their mark in the 1960s. Hippies and free spirits of all kinds were making their home in the Golden State. The Hells Angels didn't have much use for hippies, aside from selling them the occasional bags of weed in Haight-Ashbury and Golden Gate Park. But one unlikely meeting would change the fate of Sonny Barger and his angels forever. Ken Kesey was a respected author, most famous for writing the novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which had been published to wide acclaim in 1962. During the late 50s and early 60s, he had also participated in government studies about hallucinogenic drugs, including mescaline and LSD. Following the success of his novel, Kesey moved to a large house in the woods of La Honda, California. It was a gathering place for writers and artists and his own band of followers who would come to be known as the Merry Pranksters. There, they would dance, drink, do acid, and have sex. Kind of like a Hells Angels party, except without all the fistfights. The Hells Angels knew about the Merry Pranksters, but never had much use for them. The Pranksters were the peace and love type, while the Angels were mostly military veterans who solved problems with punches. But in 1965, the Hells Angels had granted gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson access to their club. And at the same time, writer Tom Wolfe was embedded with the Merry Pranksters, documenting their lifestyle. The two writers thought that Sonny and Kesey should get to know one another. And despite their different ideologies, the two bonded. They both loved drugs, after all, and Kesey respected the Hells Angels as fellow counterculture icons who did what they wanted, damn the authorities or the cops. To Sonny's surprise, the respect was mutual. He found out that Kesey was a champion wrestler and, like Sonny, had served time for marijuana possession. They had a lot in common. So, Kesey invited the Hells Angels for a visit. On Saturday, August 7, 1965, the Oakland Hells Angels roared in formation through the mountain roads outside of La Honda, a tiny town in the Santa Cruz Mountains, south of San Francisco. As always, the police knew they were coming. They tailed the bikers the last few miles to Kesey's ranch, lights and sirens blazing. The angels outraced the cops through the narrow mountain roads. The merry pranksters could hear them coming. As soon as the bikers rode through the gates, the pranksters whipped them shut. And the cops were left outside, lights still flashing. As Sonny and the angels got off their bikes, they marveled at the hippie wonderland they had stumbled into. 
Barefoot pranksters in varying states of undress wandered the property in a drugged haze, some covered in day-glow paint. Kesey and the poet Allen Ginsberg held court. Barger had been introduced to acid earlier that year and often did it with his wife. For the rest of the angels, though, this would be their first acid trip. Little did they know that this drug would soon turn their motorcycle gang into some of the biggest drug dealers in the country. The party lasted for an entire weekend, and it didn't end there. The angels became regular fixtures around the Merry Prankster compound. The writer Tom Wolfe called them an intellectual tourist attraction. Radicals and free spirits from Berkeley and San Francisco stopped by to see the leather-clad bikers making nice with hippies. For two solid months, the Hells Angels and pranksters got along swimmingly. It almost seemed too good to be true. The bikers and the hippies choosing peace and love, or rather sex and drugs, over violence. But then, things took a turn for the unexpected. The Bay Area was the epicenter of the anti-Vietnam protest movement. On October 16, 1965, an organization called the Vietnam Day Committee planned a stop-the-draft march from the UC Berkeley campus to the Oakland Army Terminal. It was one of over 100 marches planned for that day across the United States. When the Hells Angels got wind of the plans, they weren't happy. 90% of the Hells Angels, including Sonny Barger, were veterans. Their allegiance to the club was part and parcel of their allegiance to the USA. Plus, they didn't like the idea of a bunch of liberal Berkeley college kids invading their working-class town. Even though they had been dropping acid with the Merry Pranksters all summer, they drew a distinction between those hippies and the anti-war radicals in Berkeley. One group, just wanted to do drugs and have a good time. The other was agitating against the government. As the protesters marched through the streets of Berkeley, a squad of 400 Oakland cops with riot sticks were manning a barricade to prevent them from entering the city limits. And back at Hells Angels headquarters, Sonny Barger was rallying his own troops to protect their city from anti-American invaders. While the 15,000 protesters approached the Oakland cops from one side, Sonny and several angels wound their way to the front on foot. The protesters noticed them and immediately cheered, thinking these outlaws were there to support them standing up to the man. Finally, the angels pushed their way to the front of the crowd, where march organizer Jerry Rubin was giving a speech from the top of a sound truck. Sonny leapt up onto the soundtrack and lunged for Rubin. The rest of the angels also went on attack, swinging at protesters and yelling things like traitors, communists, and America first. This tipped the protest into a full-fledged riot. The police didn't know who to restrain. The Hells Angels were, for the first time ever, on the same side as the cops, but they were also the first people who threw punches. In the end, six angels were arrested, one of them for breaking the leg of a police officer. After the October 16th march, the relationship between the Hells Angels and the Bay Area counterculture movement was never the same. From then on, 
any planned march or protest also included a restraining order against Sonny and the Angels. The club was on the outs with the hippies and radicals, but in an unexpected twist, they were now surprisingly popular with the cops in middle America. After years of the public fearing that the Angels only appeared to rape and pillage, they applauded the bikers for what they saw as their patriotic defense of America. The hippies refused to give up on the Angels so easily. They had another big march scheduled for November 20th, 1965, and they wanted to avoid a repeat of the October brawl. The Vietnam Day Committee organizers invited Sonny Barger to a meeting with students, political groups, and labor unions in the cafeteria of San Jose State University. The organizers explained their politics and beliefs. Sonny was unmoved. But there was one hippie who Sonny Barger still respected, Ken Kesey. So when Kesey asked the Angels' leadership for a sit-down with him, poet Allen Ginsberg and some LSD, Sonny was willing to come to the table. Sonny loved the drugs, but even after the meeting, he still wasn't willing to broker the kind of peace deal that Ginsburg and Kesey wanted. Ginsburg's approach, which included Tibetan prayer bells and Buddhist chants, probably didn't help either. As the march approached, it was still unclear whose side the angels were on. Then, without warning, the day before the march, Sonny Barger issued a public statement. In the interest of public safety, Sonny announced that the Hell's Angels would stay away from all future Vietnam War protests. This was far from the total victory for the hippies. Sonny was clear that the Hell's Angels were standing down because they didn't want to risk producing public sympathy for the protesters if they were the victims of violence. He also volunteered the Angels for service in the army. But most people knew this was an empty promise, since most of the Hell's Angels had either been kicked out of the military or were felons. After his club was practically wiped off the map a few years earlier, Sonny Barger had managed a public relations feat of epic proportions. By attacking anti-war protesters, he had restored his club's good name with the cops and middle America. And by making peace with the hippies, he preserved his access to the burgeoning market for LSD. Sonny had never really wanted to use the Hells Angels to make a political statement. Now, he could focus on what they were good at, selling drugs. By November of 1965, the Hells Angels were in full control of the distribution of LSD in the hippie center of Haight-Ashbury, moving 50,000 hits per week. And the infamous Summer of Love was still two years away. By the second half of the 1960s, their recreational drug use had completely transformed into a full-blown criminal empire. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, Sonny Barger and his Hells Angels become a drug-dealing empire, incite violence at the Altamont Free Concert, and get slapped with a racketeering indictment. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast Originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Marler. This episode of Kingpins was written by Margaret LeBron, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. 